But this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. I invite you to turn there. If you have a paper copy of, of God's Word and, and you'd like to follow along there, I know that's kind of the way I'm wired, even though I do have a phone, a Bible on my phone, which can be helpful. If you want to turn there, please do, or pull it up on your app or whatever. We'll have it on the screen as well, and it's in the bulletin. Um, Romans 1, verses 16 uh, to 20, and we're going to be focusing on this theme of God's glory seen in nature. And I'm actually going to be following, I'll share a little bit more about this in a moment, um, a book by John Frame this morning called Nature's Case for God. And it's a really wonderful resource, and I used it as a template for the message this morning. But I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll read uh, the words of God. Lord, open our heart as we hear your word read, as we think about this important topic or a topic that I hope will encourage us and be a blessing to us and, uh, and maybe open um, deeper parts of us, parts of us maybe that have not been touched um, maybe in a long time. I pray, God, uh, ask for your grace to open the word in a way that honors you, that the words I would share would be truth and would be right, and that, Holy Spirit, you would help your people to hear and do the word. And help your people, God, apply this to their lives. Teach us today, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 1, uh, 16 to 20. And if we were to continue on in Romans 1, which at some point, again, would be a very wonderful thing to, to think more about and talk more about. It's um, being played out right in front of us in many ways in our, in our land. Um, but we're going to focus on verses 16 to 20, really 18 to 20 in particular, but 16 and 17 uh, makes sense to have read this morning as well. Hear the word of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the, un, uh, all the godlessness, sorry, all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Amen. And as we get into this topic, um, before I get into my introduction here, I'll say very briefly that uh, nature tells us some things about God, but not everything about God. And so, while there is a testimony, and while people are without excuse through the testimony that we see in, in the created world, we still must share the gospel. Paul's point right there at the start of that passage, 16 and 17, is that the, the message of the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We still must share that good news with the world. And we'll, again, we'll get into that in a little bit, but 
wanted to preface with that before we get into the message this morning. I remember going to my grandparents' home a couple of years ago while I was visiting uh, with my family in North Carolina, and my grandmother on my mom's side had just passed away. And they were preparing the home that my grandfather had built that they had lived in for their entire married life. They were preparing it to be sold. And I was overcome with emotion as we pulled up into the driveway. The particular sound of the gravel driveway under the wheels as we drove in. As we passed the large pecan trees, or as some people down there call them, pecan trees, in the front yard, I remember uh, Mama's delicious pecan pies. I thought of the games that we played with my cousins. We played games like Grab Monster, which was a fancy form of tag. My uncle would run around out there with us and the trees were the home base. I remember that very fondly as we passed by those trees. This place, that place, reminded me of some of my best memories with my family. As I've gotten older, I only cherish them more. How strange it would be then for me as we pulled up in the driveway into that home to get out a chainsaw and cut those trees down. Or how strange it would be for me to get a sledgehammer out and begin destroying the house. My mom and her sisters had taken pains to preserve the property as they began to think about selling it to make sure that it was sold to a family that would treasure it. And in God's goodness, There's a great family that's now living there that's a believing Christian family, big family, and it's in good hands. They cared for the place because they very much cared for their parents, right? They took good care. They took pains to make sure it was preserved as best as it could be for whoever would own it in the future. Their love for that place was a kind of extension of their love for my mom and my dad or for their mom and their dad. Yet at the same time, they realized that the home was not mom and dad, right? They realized that the time had come for them to move on. Our love for creation, for all that God has made, is similar to that home. It reflects something of of our God. But it's not God. So there's a tightrope, a balance here. As believers, we do not think the world is merely some kind of meaningless machine that just continues on by some random act of chance. We see the world as a home built for us by a loving God. That home reflects who he is. Like the home that my grandfather built for my mom's family, for his family. Just as my grandfather built that home in a particular way with particular goals in mind, all of which reflected their wishes, the number of children that they hoped to have, and all those kinds of things, so too God has made this world and the world reflects something of Him. All throughout creation, God is speaking to us. As we read in the call to worship, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Of God in Psalm 19. Paul's words in Romans 1 pick up on that theme. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Paul is saying that all of creation is a great theater of God's glory. 
and there's much to learn of God there. So again, like that home that my grandfather built, reflects something of him. It's not an eternal home, but it says something of him. Therefore, the family cared for it as best they could. Likewise, we should do with the created order here. One of my working theories on why so many of us in America are walking away from God is because we've lost touch with nature. We've created our own little artificial plastic worlds that reflect more of us than they do of God. We spend more time indoors today, perhaps, than ever in human history. We need to get outside again into the theater of God and behold Him. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great early theologians of the American colonies, spent a great deal of time outdoors. He loved riding on horseback and just taking walks. And he marveled at the things that he saw in nature. Not merely for themselves, but because of how God was revealing himself there. He writes this of roses. Roses grow upon briars. Which is to signify that all temporal sweets are mixed with bitter. But what seems more especially to be meant by it is that true happiness, the crown of glory, is to become at is to become at in no other way than by Christ's cross, by a life of mortification, self-denial, and labor in bearing all things for Christ. The rose, the chief of all flowers, is the last thing that comes out. The briary, prickly bush grows before, but the end and crown of all the beautiful and fragrant is the rose. So his point is, life is hard, right? And suffering is a part of our path. But that suffering leads to a crown of life and beauty and good things. And he saw this in a rose. That's what I want to talk about this morning as we get ready to host our church's second symposium, which I've been talking about now for the last couple of weeks. In early October, we're going to have some people come here and talk a bit about uh, creation and how we are called as believers to care for this world that God has created. As Christians, we should care for the creation as humble stewards. Because not only was the physical world created by God, but because it speaks of Him and reveals something of Him to us. If we love Him... We will love and care for all that he has made. Right? We won't worship it, again, to make a distinction, but we will care for it. We will steward it. But what are some things that creation tells us about God? What are some of his attributes we can see in the creation? Paul says his invisible attributes are seen there in Romans 1. Well, John Frame's little book here, Nature's Case for God, it's really excellent. It's not too long, 115 pages or so, small pages, so it's not a super dense theological work. But it's a really helpful little piece that talks about some of these things. And I use his book as a template. And he has uh, five major points in the first part of the book that uh, talk about various things that creation reveals to us about God. So I want to talk about those five Things that Frame mentions. And the first one is this. Nature reveals to us the greatness of God. The greatness of God. And if you've got your Bible, I invite you to turn to Psalm 8. We're very quickly, we're going to flip around a little bit again this morning. 
Psalm chapter 8. Nature speaks to us of the greatness of God. Psalm 8 says this. It's on 531 of our Pew Bible if you want to flip there. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you've established strength because of your foes. He goes on. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. He goes on to talk about the role that we are to play in having dominion, which is not a destruction of the natural order. It's a stewardship of the natural order. And finally, in verse 9, again, he declares, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 speaks to the majesty, the greatness of our God. Blaise Pascal, who is a Christian and also a brilliant uh, genius level scientist, wrote a book uh, back in the 1560s, a long time ago, which is a French title. I think you pronounce it the Pinson, Pinson, maybe? Um, I'm not sure how to say it, but it looks like the Pinsays in English. The Pinson, I think maybe is how you say it. Or Pinsay, I don't know. Forgive me, I never studied French. But he says this. I was a Spanish student. But to him, another prodigy, um, but to show him another prodigy, equally astonishing, this is Blaise in his book, let him examine the most delicate things he knows. Let a mite be given him with its minute body and parts incomparably more minute, limbs with their joints, veins in their limbs, blood in their veins, humors in the blood, drops in the humors, vapors in the drops. So he's going smaller, 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 infinitesimally small in these little teeny tiny bugs. Dividing these last things again and again, let him exhaust his powers of conception and let the last object at which he can arrive be now that of our discourse or our conversation. Perhaps he will think that here is the smallest point in nature and I will let him see therein a new abyss. I will paint for him not only the visible universe, but all that he can conceive of nature's immensity in the womb of this tiny abridged atom. Let him see therein an infinite infinity of universes, each of which has its firmament, its planets, its earth, in the same proportion as in the visible world, in each earth animal's and in last mites, in which he will find again all that he first had, finding still in these others the same thing without end and without cessation. That's a really complicated way of saying that no matter how small you go, even with an atomic microscope, there's, more, there's even more universes within these teeny tiny things to be discovered, however far you bore down. And right before this, in that book, he talks about the vastness of creation. So whether we're looking out at the stars the universe is almost infinitely large. It's massive, huge. No matter how big you look or how small you look, we see greatness and complexity. And he says, this is, mere, this is just some evidence of God's greatness and majesty. So we see it in the bigness and in the smallness of creation, God's greatness. That's the first point. 
Nature also reveals to us the oneness of God, the oneness of God, continuing to think about the various attributes of God that we see in the created world, the oneness of God. Turn to Acts chapter 17, if you will, with me, if you've got your Bible there. Acts 17, we'll be looking at uh, verses 23 to 25. This is that uh, Paul at the Areopagus there in Mars Hill, confronting the scholars and philosophers of the day. And he comes up and they have all of these uh, statues. And he gathers that these people are very religious and devoted to, to their ideas about the gods. And he writes... Or says these words, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul shows up and begins to speak to them about this unknown God. And contrary to what they believe, Paul says there are not many gods with each of them with their own sort of domain or thing that they're in charge of, you know, agriculture or love or you know, whatever it might be. He says there's one God. One God who's in charge of it all and he has come to proclaim that God to to them. This very great God is the only thing that can explain the complexity and yet the harmony that exists in the world around us. Frame writes this in his little book, quote, but how is it possible for this greatness, this majesty that we just read about in Psalm 8 and at Blaise Pascal points out, how is it possible for this greatness to also be a oneness? The world is a place of astonishing complexity, of a vast number of things, events, processes, and causal chains. There's a huge complex of relationships in the world. Imagine the complex of factors, all that complex of factors that must be united to tell the world's story. Think about all the various things coming together to make your life possible. Food and people and relationships and marriage and institutions and nature and all of these different things. He says polytheism cannot tell that story. The one and the many world must result from one overarching intelligence that provides not only causes, but interrelations and integrations. One mind that can piece it all together. Amen. In other words, if you have a bunch of gods each taking care of one little item or process, you would have billions of gods. And if there is a vast pantheon of billions of gods, how do you account for the incredible harmony that we see in creation, the symbiotic relationships, the connections, all the interrelations we see everywhere? It's hard enough to have a handful of people working on a team to get anything accomplished in our world let alone billions of beings trying to coordinate all the vast array of events and processes that make up the universe. There is only one God in charge of it all, Paul says, and nature reveals this to us. It's telling us one story about one being 
who is in charge of it all, and he is very, very, very great. Nature also reveals to us the wisdom of this one great God. So we've seen he's great. We've seen he's one. Nature also reveals to us the wisdom of this God. Frame's third point in his little book. In May of this year, I had the honor of burying a woman that lived in the Brightwood house over here. I've married a few or buried a few people that uh, lived over there. In May of this year, um, I buried another. And as, as I met with family and friends to talk about her life, I was told that she was a very crafty person. I was told that she could make something from nothing. After passing, after she passed, I, I was sitting with some of her girlfriends at Brightwood and we were talking about her life and what she meant to, to the people there. And there in the main room was an ornament, I guess a Christmas ornament that she had made you know, the year before. And it was there in memory of her hanging up in the, in the sort of main room there. She had put this thing together with a bunch of scrap materials, things that probably you and I would, you know, tossed out or discarded perhaps. And she was very crafty like that. It could make something out of a mess. And she wanted to get a crafty, crafting group started at Brightwood. And she was very good at taking stuff, again, that most of us would have no use for and turning it into something beautiful and useful. And at her a memorial service at the graveside, I said that was a small way we saw God in her. The book of Romans is a masterpiece letter that tells us the grand story of redemption from start to finish. Of how God has taken a broken and messed up world that sometimes we think should just be discarded and thrown out. And he's writing an incredible and beautiful story. The chapter we're looking at this morning, Romans 1, reflects upon the fall of humankind. That time when we began suppressing the knowledge of God and rejecting Him. Paul begins with that great suppression of God's truth. God has revealed Himself. Yet we've suppressed that knowledge. We continue to do that today. God is on display for all to see all around us. And we cast Him behind our backs. The truth is not popular, but it's there for all to see. It's merely suppressed. The world's gotten to be such a huge mess, one wonders how anything good can come of the situation. The story of history is really just one long string of humans trying to prove their wisdom only to reveal how foolish we really are. You could look at history that way. That would be one lens you could take on it. In the final analysis... Every good thing given to us by God is corrupted and used for evil ends by sinful men. We distort, we corrupt, we exploit, we oppress over and over again. Scripture speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 and 21. If you want to turn there, I told you we're going to flip around a little bit today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It's on page 1131 if you got the Pew Bible there. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. History is that one big story of us trying to make something of ourselves, trying to prove ourselves wise, only to show that we how foolish we truly are. 1 Corinthians 3 goes on to say, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Again, the story of history is men suppressing the truth, messing up life in the world over and over again, and God proving His wisdom and His truth. Not only history, but creation itself is telling this story. In Romans 8, again, if you've got Bible and want to flip there, flip there with me to Romans 8. God tells us that all of creation is eagerly waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise of redemption. Verses 19 through 23 in Romans 8. This starts on page 1122 if you want to jump there. It's okay if you don't want to keep flipping around with me. Verses 19 to 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's almost as if the world is saying, how much longer, Lord, we have to put up with these sinful people destroying the world and messing everything up. The creation itself, right, is longing. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And how do we know that that wasn't Satan that subjected the creation? Because of the very next two words, in hope. Satan doesn't do anything in hope. Satan doesn't want to create hope. He wants to bash it and destroy it and root it out. God subjected the creation to futility in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons or redemption of our bodies. All of creation is groaning, groaning and declaring the wisdom of God and the folly of men. When you have time, read Romans 11. We won't look there now, but from Romans 1 through 11 is basically... God telling us in short form how he has taken the broken world and telling a beautiful story of redemption through it. What does Romans 11 end with? It ends with the doxology. With Paul, after having said all of these things about how we've displayed our folly and God has put on display his wisdom, he gets after saying all of that, he gets to the end. And here's what he says. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God is weaving a beautiful story, putting on display his wisdom in history. And you can see that, again, if you go to Romans 11 and, and, and read through that. The fourth attribute of God that Frame discusses in his book that we can see in nature. 
uh, at least see clearly in nature, is the goodness of God. The goodness of God. There are many ways we see the goodness of God in nature, but I just want to highlight um, a couple uh, quickly on this point. And the first can be seen in Acts chapter 14, verse 17. If you flip to Acts 14, verse 17. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Other translations say he has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, providing you with food, filling your heart with joy. God is kind to all peoples. Even though everyone has sinned and turned away from God in one way or another, God is still kind and gives good gifts to his creatures. Right? Jesus, too, speaks of this in the Sermon uh, on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. We won't flip there, but there he says he sends rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? He's displaying his kindness and mercy even to people that have rejected him. That's the first way we see God's goodness in nature. And another way we see God's goodness in Nature is in his establishment of a moral order. Okay, that's a fancy way of saying that we, we understand that there's some things we call good and some things we call bad, right? Some actions that are good, some actions that are bad. And this is a gift from God. Now, our understanding of those things is corrupted by the fall, right? And you know, even our minds and our hearts don't see it as we ought to see it. It's corrupted. But everyone has some kind of compass, which we call conscience, right? God has given us a conscience. It gives us a sense that some things are right, some things are wrong, some actions are good, and some are not. Without such an understanding, all of life would be complete chaos. And God has given us things like mathematical truth. Four plus three is seven. It's not six. Say it's six is wrong, regardless of what some of our schools will tell you today. Right? Four plus three is seven. That's the correct answer. There are logical truths. Without these and without moral truths, we could not have civilization. Right? And that's a part of what's happening all around us right now. Civilization is collapsing because we're rejecting the the inherent order that God has created. In other words, there's a standard of right and wrong without which the world couldn't work. God has been good to give us a moral sense that reflects his own. It's good. This has been written into the very fabric of everything that's been made. And most of us, most of us have a deep intuition that it's wrong, for instance, to murder someone. It's wrong to torture children. It's wrong to dump oil in the ocean and kill tons of wildlife. Right? There's just something in us that tells us that. Even if we don't have... Someone back there smirking. That's not wrong. (laughs) Even if we have God's word that tells us these things, but we also have a conscience. It's written into the moral fabric of of how we're made and into the world. We just have a sense of this. And that sense comes from God. We all sense that we have broken his law. And we have something else called guilt, right? Every one of us deals with that too. That guilt deep within us is also a gift. The Bible says God's kindness leads us to repentance. 
Right? And he's drawing us with this conscience and this guilty conscience that we all feel. He's inviting us to turn to him, to appeal to his goodness and mercy. And look around and say, God, you are kind to all creatures. Be kind to me too. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. God is not only great. God is not only one and not only wise, but he is also good. And we see this in the created order. The fifth thing that nature clearly reveals to us is the presence of God. The presence of God. I want you to turn to Psalm 139. Again, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, please do. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. I'm going to just read it. It's page 618 if you're flipping around trying to find it. Psalm 139, 7 to 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, excuse me, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, Your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. And it goes, goes on and on and on. Often we think of God as being out there somewhere, right? You've heard the expression. You'll hear this on, uh, you know, lots of times, uh, sports uh, event, uh, maybe an athlete does something great, big guy in the sky helped me out, man upstairs, you know, we kind of think of him as like, yeah, he's out there somewhere, you know, watching over us kind of thing from afar. This psalm tells us that God is present and close. But in Acts 17, Paul takes it even a step further. If you want to flip there again, I know we were just there a moment ago, some of you are like, come on, pastor, you got me burning burning the pages of the bible here flipping back and forth so much acts 17 again verses 26 to 28 in that section there and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined in allotted periods the boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek god and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, Paul says right there. It's not far, right? He just points right to this one God, this creator God, and he says he's not way up there or out there. He's close. And what Paul is getting at is that when we ponder who we are and what we are, we can see God. We can see him. Not that we are God or little gods, but what we are somehow reflects God, points to God. It reveals him to us. The Bible says we're made in his image, right? We have the imago Dei, it's a fancy term. It means the image of God. We're made in God's image. Yet it doesn't take long to see that we've corrupted ourselves and we've strayed, as we've already discussed. We suppress the truth. We don't want to believe that there is a God because we have all of this guilt and we feel like if if this God is good and he's this is moral order and I don't live up to it. What's he going to do if he gets close to me? We know that God is good and that he's righteous and he's the one who's given us this law and that he is also the enforcer of that law. We know these things inherently. 
So there's a part of us that grows really uncomfortable at the thought of this great and good creator God being near us. But he is near. And he is near. All of this can be seen in the natural world. But the natural world alone cannot give us everything we need to know about God. So many of our neighbors and family members and friends sense everything we've talked about here. But they don't have this last piece that we're going to talk about now. This last piece of a puzzle, we might call it. You ever sat down to do a puzzle and you're missing just one piece? You ever had that happen? We've done that a couple times at our house. There we are working on the puzzle to find out that one piece was missing. It just drives you crazy. Sometimes it's an important piece. It's like the face of the person or something, like the eye's gone. And you're like, I can't even tell who it is. The eye's gone, right? Really noticeable piece. It doesn't work without that piece. Well, nature is like that. We can see all of these things we've just talked about of God in nature. But there's a key piece of the puzzle missing. Jesus is that key piece. He's that grand piece. Without Jesus, the puzzle is incomplete. It just doesn't make sense. Can't get the whole picture. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 say this. Feel free again to turn there if you want. I'm just going to read it out of my notes here. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's that center puzzle piece, the cornerstone, the one that holds the whole building together. Makes no sense without him. C.S. Lewis once spoke of his faith in Jesus this way. He said, quote, I believe in Christianity in Jesus as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. There is much to know about God from the natural world, but we cannot know everything from the natural world about God. And for this reason, Christ came down. He came down. He came very close and took on flesh. Jesus took on flesh and came down and lived with us. He became the God man. He revealed to us the rest of the puzzle. And now it's our job to tell others about him. One of the ways we can tell others about Jesus is through our love and our care for the natural world that God created. Not worship the natural world. Not see it as the end of all things and totally freak out because we think it's you know, going to burn up or something. No. But as a signpost pointing to our great God. Right? We can be concerned with, with hope and steward with hope. To close... I would like to go back to where I started, Jonathan Edwards. Edwards saw all of the natural world as filled with evidence for God and what he called types and shadows, things that point to God. And earlier I read uh, words about the rose, and now hear what he wrote about the silkworm. I just think this is great. We'll close here, and then we'll pray. On the silkworm, Edwards writes this. The silkworm 
is a remarkable type of Christ, which, when it dies, yields us that of which we make such glorious clothing, silk. Christ became a worm for our sakes, and by his death finished that righteousness with which believers are clothed, and thereby procured that we should be clothed with robes of glory. Is that not beautiful? Christ is that puzzle piece that makes sense of everything. Run to Christ. Believe in Christ if you have not yet. Let's pray together now. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful testimony that we see all around us of your greatness, of your oneness, your goodness, your wisdom, your righteousness, and your closeness, all of those things we see in the created order. But that we might be saved from our guilt and so that we might have righteousness and relationship with you. You gave us that final peace. You came down and dwelt among us. You lived a righteous life and died an atoning death and rose again on the third day that we all might have everything we need in you and that it might all make sense. Thank you for Jesus. And help us as we think about these things to know our place in this world, to know our place in stewarding all that you've made. Give us grace as we seek to do this without idolizing the creation, without bowing down to it and pretending that it's our eternal home. Here we have no lasting city. We seek a city which which is to come. And we know you will renew it. And we rejoice in that day. So let us walk that line of stewarding but not worshiping. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.